Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel according to Mark. I'm reading to you from chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the good news of the gospel for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds, may these give you pleasure, God. You who are our rock. You who save us. Amen. Today, as Jody said, is the first Sunday in Lent, and this is a season of reflecting upon our lives and drawing closer to God. But that I, I know that for some of us, the image of Lent is one of beating oneself up. Lent is the period of time in which we feel bad about ourselves, in which we really suffer. And if that's what our image of Lent is, um, a lot of us may be thinking, ugh, <laughs> you know, ugh, oh great, Lent. And not that we should be jumping up and down about Lent, but it's, it's not the negative sense that we may have about it. Instead, Lent is a time of feeling God's tender care for us, being willing to have the courage to face the places in our lives that need to change, but taking hold of that grace and new possibility that's available to us in Christ. I want to, to reflect with you on the story read from Mark and the way that it is a resource for us that shows us that Lent is not all about feeling bad about ourselves. Instead, Lent begins with the good news of God's love and care for us through Jesus' baptism. When we read the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that Jesus' baptism was a a rupture, a breaking in. It's, it's fascinating. Matthew and Mark refer to the baptism, and it says the heavens opened, and it sounds like an observatory open, and then you get to look up at the heavens. Mark makes it much more intense. In Mark, the heavens were ripped open. They were torn open. There was a break that any barrier there was between the heavenly host and God and humans, that was ripped apart. So when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens were ripped open. A dove descended, or the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and a voice said to Jesus, you, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus's ministry began with that powerful affirmation of his identity, and that powerful sense of God's love and care for him. And that is the basis for any ministry, that awareness of our baptism, that awareness of God's treasuring us. But from the baptism, immediately, Jesus finds himself 
thrust into the wilderness. We would like to imagine that Jesus got to kind of hang out for a while in his baptism, maybe have a baptismal party, maybe get to wear his new white clothing. Nope. Immediately, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted. And this is a part that many of us have struggled with uh, over centuries of Christian teaching. Why would Jesus be tempted? And what was going on there? Again, when we read the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they give us a whole series of questions, a dialogue between Jesus and Satan, showing us Jesus being tested in very specific ways. Mark doesn't give us that. All Mark tells us is that immediately the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted, and that while he was there, he was, he was tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, the angels ministered to him. And then immediately after that, Jesus began sharing the good news of God's love and grace, inviting people to repent, to turn around their lives and believe in the good news. But what about this issue of temptation? How would Jesus be tempted, or what does that mean? It might help to know that the Greek word for temptation, parazo, is the same word for testing. So Jesus is being tempted. He's being tested. It is, in some ways, that kind of trial run to see if Jesus is ready for this next stage, for his public ministry. If we think about it as testing, we think about the ways that when a person is developing and coming into maturity, there are various tests along the way where you try out to see if a person is ready for the next step. Good parents do that. I think about my parents giving me chances to learn how to ride a bicycle, and I started out on a tricycle, and then I was ready to move from that to a, a two-wheeler with training wheels. But at some point, mom and dad had to try out, can Jane handle a bicycle without the training wheels? And so I was put on a bicycle, let's see if she can do it. Every parent goes through this with children. Can your child handle this next step? And sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. Sometimes you don't have the muscle development or the coordination and you can't manage that next, next stage, but you can't know that without testing it, without trying it out. And so at some point, I was placed on a two-wheel bicycle, or I got on myself, and I don't remember if I was able to cycle right away or if I was creamed, like if I just got splatted on the ground. But depending on how that went, mom and dad would have said, okay, yep, we can keep her on a two-wheeler, or nope, back to the training wheels. It was a testing time. You test to see if something is going to work, if someone's ready for the next stage. Maybe that's what happened with Jesus, Satan kind of testing him, checking to see would he be able to withstand uh, the lures, uh, the kind of pressures that would come out in Jesus's life to turn his back on the Father. Or maybe it was a direct temptation in the way we think more traditionally, a temptation as something that would lure us away from what we should be doing, from what we should be thinking, from how we should be acting, a temptation to sin. When we think about temptation, often our first reaction is maybe chocolate. <laughs> we think about tempting desserts. But we also know of the temptation to act badly, the temptation to make ourselves look better than we are, the temptation to look more important, to puff up, to be impressive. And those are the kind of temptations we see in Matthew and in Luke. 
In Mark, we just hear temptation. But we can imagine the kinds of things because we know from our own lives those things that tempt us. That Pope Gregory the Great talked about temptation as not uh, one moment, but a three-stage process. And I hope this is helpful. Three stages of suggestion, desire, and consent. Suggestion is when the option arises. Suggestion is when something becomes possible, that idea, that suggestion that you could do this thing. Desire is that phase of thinking about, reflecting upon what, what could be acted upon, imagining and dreaming, perseverating on that option. And then consent is the moment of, yep, I'm going to do it. So to give an example, imagine that you find a wallet on the ground and the wallet is full of cash. The suggestion is that idea that pops into your head, I could keep this. There is the wallet, no one's around, I could keep this. Then the desire is what starts going through the brain of what you could do with that cash. Oh, that'd be great, I could buy that thing I've been wanting to buy, or I could pay off something, or I could, oh, just all, all that thinking, that desiring. What would be all the options of using the cash that I've found? But a person can have the suggestion, the, the experience of, I could keep the cash. A person could have the experience of desire, of thinking through, oh, well, I could do this, I could do that. But it's after that, the consent, that makes the difference. You could imagine keeping the cash in the wallet, but still return the wallet. It requires consent to go through with the tempting option. Gregory the Great had lifted up these three examples, and it was Augustine who said, you're only sinning in that third example. You're only sinning when you consent to it. We can't help it if our immediate reaction to something is perhaps sinful. Oh, boy, could I use that money? The sin starts coming in when we keep thinking about it, focusing on it, dreaming about it, imagining this possibility so that, that in some ways we can consent to something even in just our fantasizing about it. And that's the kind of thing Jesus was referring to in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about how even you know, your eye could lead you to sin even if you don't act on it. That fantasizing about it, the consent or not consenting is the way to avoid the sin of these things that could come in our way. One example of that in everyday life is gossip. Uh, you hear some juicy bit of information, something that is confidential, or something that maybe looks, makes your opponent look bad, something that feels delicious for some reason. And that is the suggestion. The desire is that moment of imagining telling someone else how important you might feel, how you might feel like an insider, how uh, it might give you a special, you know, extra boost in some circumstance because you knew and you shared this particular information. The consent would be if you choose indeed to share that information, to take that extra step. And in our lives, we are faced with temptations, things that are options or possibilities that come to us, and we have to decide how we are going to behave within them. 
In the last couple of months, I've gotten hooked on the Netflix series, The Crown, about Queen Elizabeth II. And it's really interesting going through the early years of her reign and thinking about the kinds of issues that come up uh, when you have both the very private life of being a human being and the very public life of being the monarch of England and the British Commonwealth. There was an episode that struck me in which Queen Elizabeth's younger sister, Princess Margaret, is chafing at the bit. She is the second sister. She's not the queen. And she was going through a hard time. She had fallen in love with Captain Townsend, a dashing man who was divorced. And divorce was not approved of. In the Church of England, divorced people at that time were not supposed to remarry. And so she was in this love that had seemed hopeless but was very powerful to her. The crown didn't quite know what to do about this problematic relationship, and so Captain Townsend was sent to go serve uh, over in Belgium, kind of get him away, get him out of the scene. And here was Margaret, a lovely young woman with not much to do, her sweetheart across on the continent, and she's bored and chafing and resenting her big sister. So her mother, the queen mom, goes to Elizabeth and says, Come on, Elizabeth, let, let Margaret do something. Let her, you know, one of these things where you go out and the queen makes an, makes a, an appearance or makes a statement. You let Margaret do one of those. Come on, she can handle that. And Elizabeth debates, but she knows how difficult her sister's life is, so she, she decides, yes, Margaret can do that. Well, then you see Margaret at this press conference, and she is making the statement she is supposed to as representing the queen. But then one of the reporters starts asking her questions about Captain Townsend. Well, Margaret never got the limelight, and in this moment, the limelight was hers, and she took it. She fluttered. She flirted. She joked. The reporters asked her question, and you see her just lighting up and getting all that attention, and she loves it. And it was entirely wrong for a representation of the queen. <laughs> you understand why she falls for it, but that's not how you represent the queen. You're not flirting with the reporters. You're not playing coy. You're not being charming. That's not what the role was. Margaret was tested, and she couldn't handle it. She was too vulnerable in her own self, too vulnerable in her own identity, too vulnerable in her loneliness, and she couldn't manage herself to go out and represent the queen without falling into that trap. She wasn't ready for it yet. She failed the test, which is why Lent can be a good opportunity, a hard one, but a good opportunity to reflect upon our own lives and where our vulnerabilities are. What are the temptations that are most likely to lure us? Where are we particularly vulnerable? Do we want to be more powerful? Do we want to feel more attractive? Do we want to feel less lonely? What are, what are the aspects in our lives where we feel a vulnerability and we're frankly more likely to consent to something that we should not consent to? While we're reflecting on that, though, we need to go back to the beginning of the story, to the root of our Christian faith, and that is baptism. Jesus was not sent into the wilderness by the Spirit until after his baptism. He had been named by God. He had been claimed by God. The, root, the heavens had been ripped open. That deep love of God's desiring to be close to us, to be one of us in the person of Jesus, that rupture 
of, of intimacy and care had happened. With that strength from that baptism, Jesus could then go into the wilderness and withstand the temptations that he faced. We will face temptations in our lives. It's just the nature of human existence. But we can resist. We are less likely to consent when we are deeply rooted in our own baptisms, when we already know ourselves beloved of God, named and claimed and cherished. And when we know that, we are less likely to fall into the trench, to consent, to get flattered by the reporters, as Margaret did, and step away from what our true act is. May this Lenten season be a time in which we walk day by day with the courage to face some of the tough stuff in our own lives, to be aware of sin and to become more aware of those elements that we find more tempting, our vulnerabilities that make us more likely to consent when we shouldn't. But let us do that not as an action of self-flagellation or feeling bad about ourselves. Let it instead be a time deeply rooted in God's love, trusting that the more we are aware of those things, the more safeguarded we are, and leaning into God, leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit to resist the temptations that will come our way. With that baptismal calling, with that baptismal rootedness, we can remain strong with God's help. Thanks be to God. Amen.